The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Motherhood Unstressed, a podcast for anyone who wants to let go of stress and anxiety, take their power back, and learn how to create a truly beautiful life. Each week, I'm speaking with amazing individuals who are experts in the field of entrepreneurship, fitness, nutrition, motherhood, sex, and so much more. I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. I'm a mom, a blogger, and a certified health coach. I'm obsessed with personal growth and change, and I've helped women all around the world regain alignment with what they truly value in life and remove the blocks preventing them from living their life to the fullest. If you're ready to stop living a half-life and move fully into your power, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey guys, in this episode, I'm speaking with ABC News Chief National Correspondent Matt Gutman, and I was so excited to have him on the episode. Obviously, he's someone who's very well known. He has spent his career traveling all over the world, interviewing hundreds of people on their worst day, as he calls it, um, putting himself and his life at risk to cover these fascinating stories. And so I wanted to know what motivates him to do that kind of job and what has he seen in his travels and what links us as humans all over the world, especially in times of crisis. And so he gives some really poignant and interesting answers. And I was so thankful that he decided to come on the show. And then, of course, we cover his new book, The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand. And I have been hooked on reading this book. And I think whether you're a parent or not, the story of these 12 soccer players and their coach trapped in this cave in Thailand for weeks uh, is so gripping and and just it captures your attention and it captured the attention of the world for good reason. Um, And so by listening to this interview, you're really going to get a behind the scenes look at all of the interviews that Matt did and the personal stories that he was able to capture. And so I think it's going to reignite that interest in that story in you and definitely inspire you to go pick up the book because it's fascinating. It reads like a fictional thriller. Um, So good. Um, So without further ado, here's my interview with Matt Gutman. Hey guys, I want to talk really quickly about CBD. I know you've probably been hearing a lot about it lately. It's kind of blowing up in the news and there's good reason for it. CBD is short for cannabidiol and it comes from the hemp plant and the hemp plant is basically the sister plant to the marijuana plant and CBD comes from the flower in the hemp plant and it's amazing for stress, anxiety, pain, inflammation, but it's non-psychoactive. It's not going to get you high like typical marijuana. Um, And it just has all of these amazing health benefits. So I strongly encourage you to do your own research, decide for yourself if you think CBD would help you um, with whatever you're dealing with, because the list of what it treats is insane. I mean, it's the closest thing to snake oil that I've ever seen. Um, But I do have my own line of organic CBD supplements. You can find them on my website, motherhoodandstress.com. And if you use the code LAUNCH, you can save 10%. Hey, Matt. I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, I've watched your work for a while, so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's really good to be here. 
Yeah. So I'm going to dive right in with the question. And I'm really curious, what motivates you to do the work that you do? Basically going into extremely dangerous locations a lot of the time and putting your life at risk. Wow. You really did just jump in. I mean, you went like (laughs) the gizzards there. Um, You know, I don't know what motivates me. You know, I've been thinking about it recently and um, this is all I've ever done. So before I worked at ABC, I was a print reporter and I was in the Middle East and, and, you know, I wanted to be a war correspondent. And so I did war. I did all the violence between the Palestinians and Israelis. And I did, I went to Afghanistan many times and Iraq and Lebanon and Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and everywhere. Um, and I, I, now I realize that I, I, I think that part of it is being addicted to awe. Hmm. I, 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 there's something about being awed by something. Um, either human phenomenon or natural phenomenon that is incredible. You're seeing something that is rare. Um, and as horrific as it was, just you know, taking the example of last week at the fires, just seeing the, the scale of the obliteration, the power of Mother Nature to destroy is almost unparalleled. And you know, I don't take joy in it, but it is incredible to be able to see that. And then to be able to tell people's stories, the human part of it, um, it's something that makes me feel good as a human to be able to use my skills as a communicator to relay what these people would otherwise not have an opportunity to relay and maybe get them some help. Um, so it's this kind of twofold thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's funny. I've been doing this for 19 years and I still don't have the best answer that I think I could about why I do what I do, but maybe nobody does. Um, you know, you kind of fall into it and you try to use the skills that you have, um, to the best of your ability and to help as many people as you can help, um, given what you do. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting because so many people fall short of that. You know, they're, they're doing things that they're really good at, but it's not their passion or it doesn't light them up. And I can tell through your work that it really does. I mean, it's interesting to you. You're attracted to that kind of energy and that excitement yeah. and it shows it comes across. It's weird, too, because, you know, so often, I mean, almost any time I'm on a story, it's somebody else's worst day, Mm. right? They've been arrested. They've been shot at. They've lost their home. They're in some political quagmire. What if 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 journalists like me are there, especially, you know, national journalists, it's bad. Generally, we don't do a lot of good stories. And so it's weird because you're you're dealing with people who are hurting often. And I try to show as much sympathy and compassion as I possibly can. Um, And it's weird. I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I put all of that, you know, and sometimes I I come home and I'm really, really beat up from being sad. And, you know, my wife helps me out and, uh, and then you move on, but it's, it's a weird thing. It's interesting. You're making me think about it in a way that I haven't uh, Mm. in some time. So thank you. Sort of. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> sort of. And I'm, I'm giving you like total. No, it's it's fantastic. Answer. No, it's it. I think you know it really does speak to our listeners too because so much on this show we talk about connecting with others and and doing our purposeful work. But at the same time, I can see how you would have to protect that energy and and it's hard because you want to be empathetic and you want to connect because that's your job is to connect and tell stories. And right. so, how do you? When you do go home, how do you stay grounded after you know traveling the world and seeing the things that you've seen? 
you know, honestly, the hardest part for me as a dad and, and as a husband is completely disconnecting because there's always, there are always more emails to do and people are still looking for you even once you get home. Um, so I try to put the phones down. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I have two of them. I have an iPhone watch and like iPad, you know, I mean, we're surrounded by these devices. Um, I don't always succeed, but I try to put the phones down and just focus on the kids. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get back into it yeah. because, you know, I've been gone and I'm gone basically every week and my wife and kids have moved on and they have their own routine and own rhythm. And I've got to kind of get back into that rhythm. And so it takes me a little bit of time, but once I'm there and sometimes it can take two minutes or 10 minutes or mm-hmm. an hour a day, but once I'm there and I start to have fun with kids, it's the best, it's the best therapy. Like last night I got home at seven thirty, and you know, I, I got to put my son to sleep and I talked to him in and I read him a book and I lay with him. And then my daughter who's 10, she was up for a little bit. And so she accompanied me while I ate dinner which was fun. And we just start making jokes. And then we clean up and we clean up the house, the kitchen by, she stands at the refrigerator and the pantry and I throw her all the things that need to go in. So I wrap them up (laughs) and I throw them across the room at her and she's got amazing hands. She's Mm -hmm. super athletic. And so, um, she catches and puts them in and then we have this banter and then we do this thing where, you know, I'm washing the dishes. I wash, she puts, and I don't know. It's just, you know, you get into this rhythm and it's the best therapy because you realize that, these are your people mm-hmm. everywhere in the world. You're talking to people and all I do is talk to people and work with people, but these are my people and I love them so much and being home with them. I don't know. It just makes me feel whole. It's really the only thing I'm always searching at work for that next thing. And I, you know, I'm ambitious and I want to tell everybody's story. I want to make it the best I can. But when I come home to, to those little people and my wife, um, that's, that's like my place. Anyway, I don't, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's, that's anyway, it's, it's my therapy. Absolutely. And I know the listener right now is nodding their head in their car or on their run, wherever they may be when they're listening to this, because it's so true. And like everyone has to work, you know, it's, it's a reality, but right. to know that, you know, your home is with your people. I mean, I think that that's so beautifully yep. said. I love it. You know, I'll add one more thing, just since this is about motherhood and I'm thinking about fatherhood and, and childhood. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think, I mean, if we're going to get all shrinky and stuff uh, that I do what I do is that, uh, you know, and I just actually, I was on Dan Harris's 10% happier podcast. And it's the first time I revealed this publicly. Um, so now is the second time, but you know, I'm thinking about it more and more and it's crazy that it took me nearly 30 years. But, um, when I was 12, my, my father was killed in a plane crash. Mm. So, you know, a very violent, a very immediate and sudden way of dying. And, you know, there are two ways you can go. You can live your life fearful after that, or you can go and feel no fear. And I've sort of veered on the lack of fear side of it. Although I'm constantly terrified of things, I still do it anyway. Um, I have perpetual anxiety, um, but I keep doing stuff. And I think I'm drawn to things that are a little bit more dangerous sometimes, uh, possibly because of my history. And I don't know if anybody else out there has lost a parent. And now I'm going to go deeper. You probably don't want to go. But it's a really weird thing. I'm turning 41 in a couple of weeks. And my dad was barely 42 when he died. And very soon, I'm going to be the same age as my father was when he died. And he's been dead for um, 28 years. And uh, it's just a, or 29 years. It's just a weird point in one's life where you're outliving your parent. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people out there have, have 
been there, um, I'm kind of wondering what it's going to be like. Um, it's sort of a strange milestone. Well, but I think that's so beautiful. I mean, it's, you've taken what tragedy happened and you've made it into something amazing where you're touching so many lives, you're impacting so many lives. And like you said, you're helping as well, which is right. Yeah. yeah. If, if, you know, if we can make one person's life a little bit better, that's, that's enough. You know, I, yeah. I don't expect to impact that many people, but, um, yeah. And in my day to day, I just try to smile at people. Also, I have <laughs> terrible eyesight and I refuse to get glasses, so I don't know if I actually recognize What's with that guy? <laughs> so I'm always smiling at random strangers and it actually, you know, it, it's okay. One last thing about, about my job. I love talking to people and I make almost all the amazing things that have happened to me on my job have happened from talking to random people, from just being persistent and talking to people who might not be interested in talking to me or might be, but it doesn't matter because you make a connection and something happens. And then somehow you use that connection down the road and it works to everybody's benefit. Um, so I, I highly recommend smiling at people, even if you don't know them. That's, that's a really, if, nobody's asking my advice, but if they were, <laughs> I would say that that's one of the things that is, worked best for me in life. No, I think that's brilliant. I know in any profession that's going to work out for you. You I think so. It's a numbers game. Right. Exactly. You're Mm -hmm. exactly right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have traveled all over the world. You've met hundreds of people. You've interviewed hundreds of people. What's something that you see is common within the human condition? Trans, you know, transgressing cultures and ages and genders. What's something that always is a mediator? Well, a smile is the one thing that works everywhere. A genuine mm-hmm. smile. Um, and not the half smile that we do to strangers that we see on the streets and cities, you know, that this sort of, what is that? Sort of like a recognition smile. Like I see you, but I'm not really willing to be vulnerable with you and actually mm-hmm. like give you the honest, genuine eye smile, which really means that you, you're, you're connecting. Um, that's something that, that connects because, you know, in many of the places I don't speak the language language and we rely on fixers and translators to basically be our interface with a lot of these people. Um, unfortunately, one of the most common denominators that I see, because when I go to places, I'm seeing people being miserable is, mm-hmm. is misery. Um, you know, people, people express sadness um, in pretty much the same way all over the world. Um, and so that's a hard thing that I see. Um, what else is a common denominator? Children, family. Um, mm-hmm. I think pretty much everywhere you go, the most important possession, possession thing, uh, whatever you want to call it, that people have in their lives are their kids. Um, and it's the one thing they're pretty much willing to do anything to protect and preserve. And, you know, we're one of the reasons we're talking is because I just wrote this book about the Thai cave rescue. Yeah. And so, Okay. Just to bring everybody up to speed, um, 12 Thai boys and their coach finished the soccer practice June 23rd. Uh, as a team-building exercise, they went into this cave. Um, it, it's sort of a, a team-building exercise adventure. People have been going into it for a long time. No one had ever been stuck. It's one of the longest caves in Thailand. It goes in six miles. They went in about four miles. On their way out, a flash flood cut off their exit, and they couldn't get out. And the kids were stuck in there for 10 days until they were discovered. Nobody knew if they were alive or dead. I got there after they were discovered because it became this huge national story. And um, one of the first things we did is go to the outside of the cave to the tent where the parents were. And the parents now knew that their children were alive by the time I got there. 
They mm-hmm. didn't know how rescuers would get them out and neither did rescuers. And so, you know, going there, I, I've been to one of the schools where the boys went to school and his kid, his fellow students showed me his, his art and his portraits and his sketches and his notebook and t-shirts that he's made. And I showed pictures to one of the mothers and she started crying. And then, you know, that's when it became real to me. Like this woman has been out there sitting outside this cave, sleeping outside this cave, eating outside the cave for then it was 12 days. And I just couldn't imagine that torture. And that's when the people, the humans in this story became so real to me. I was like, Oh my God, how do you do this? These poor parents, these poor families, um, you know, they're real. They're so real, these people. Uh, and it really, it just, it, that was really intense. Um, and, uh, luckily those boys got rescued. It took Herculean effort by thousands of people and really, um, of those thousands of people, there are only about six divers who were able to do the work and physically yeah. pull these people out of the cave. And even going in that morning, the divers believed that 75 to 80% of the boys would die. So up to 10 of the 12 boys would not make it out of that cave alive during the extraction because it was so dangerous. Nothing like this had ever been done. They had never done it. There was no precedent for sedating kids this deep in a cave. Like none of this had ever been done. And so they were deeply worried about the welfare of the boys. And the parents didn't know if their kids survived until the very last boy was out and in the hospital. Oh, so wow. they were kept on tenterhooks in this horrific stage of, of uncertainty for 19 days. I went back on my third reporting trip uh, like six weeks after the, the, the cave rescue. And um, all the kids had sort of recovered and... When I went to this little town in northern May- in northern Thailand where they live, it's called Maesai. I mean, it's right up against the Myanmar border uh, with Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar. And the kids were all out riding their bikes at 9 o'clock at night mm. um, on these terrible, unlit, potholed roads in Maesai. Some of the kids were on mopeds. And I talked to one of the boys' mothers that boy named Don, he was the captain of the under 13s. And she owns this trinket shop where I got this, uh, this bracelet that she gave me. Um, I was like, how, how, you know, if, if this were me and this is my, I have a 10 year old who plays soccer. And if she had been stuck in a cave on one of the team's excursions, I would never let her out of my sight. I'd leash that kid. (laughs) I I mean, wouldn't you Liz? I mean, look, look. yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine it. She, She said, Matt, if, if we don't, if we hold on to them too tightly, we're going to lose them. So the only way to hold on to these kids is to let them go. And they're boys. We've got to let them be adventurers. We've got to let them keep riding their bikes, going around, doing the things that they've always done, or they're never going to recover. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I can actually affect that advice, but I loved it. Um, I think about it a lot and uh, I'll try to you know, apply it in, in my daily life with my kid. And I do, you know, consciously think about letting go of our children in order to keep them close. Um, but I just thought, you know, after all of it that they had been through, that I witnessed them going through personally, to be able to have that attitude after this whole thing was over, just blew my mind. I was so impressed with that. That is amazing. It is yeah. amazing. Do you think your role as a father was the reason that you decided to take this particular story and write a book about it? I mean, because you covered, covered amazing things, but this one story. 
Yeah, because I, you know, I, my daughter's 10 years old. She plays in a soccer team. They go out and they do stuff together. And sometimes we're not there. Other parents are there. And yeah, I just, I, I, it, there's rarely, a, you know, part of the thing that I've always been interested in, you know, vis-a-vis what we spoke about earlier is survival and dangerous things. And I was fascinated, you know, the book is dedicated to two people. One is Saman Gunan, who's a Navy SEAL who died at the very start of the rescue. And the other is to my father, Paul Gutman, who, for whom rescue was impossible. And I've always been interested about and in how people survive, how you can help yourself survive and if you can, and how rescuers help people survive. Um, and so for that reason, this was interesting. And obviously, as a father of a child who plays soccer, of a daughter who's just a year younger than the youngest boy in the cave, um, it was something that I could obviously identify with. And then once I met the parents, um, it became something that, you know, was just right in my wheelhouse. And I just became fascinated with it. And I, I realized very quickly that I knew how much I didn't know about this story. There was mm. so much still there that the Thai government hadn't let us know, which made it enticing. You know, as a journalist, if you have the opportunity to do some digging and reveal stuff that's not really there or out, um, that's that's pretty attractive. So like, it was really a combination of factors. And it just, it turned out to be even a better story than I ever imagined it would be. So much more complex, so much more exciting. You know, all of these things that were happening, there rescues before the rescues and intrigue and political nastiness between all these countries that were there and the U.S. Special Forces, the U.S. Special uh, Tactics Team from Okinawa that really played a central role. I didn't even know that the Americans had been so involved, um, but they basically planned the entire rescue, even though their divers weren't going into the very end of the cave. So there was so much there for me that, you know, I, I felt compelled to write the book. That was amazing. And it reads like a novel, almost like a spy novel. But Did you really got- read it? Yes. Yeah. Your publicist sent it to me. I was on the plane headed to Vegas last week and was reading it. I was obsessed with it. Oh my it's, God. It's so awesome. cool. I yeah. love that, Liz. Thank of you. Course. Yeah. yeah. It, that's, it's supposed to read like a thriller, even though it's, it does. It's, it does. You know, nonfiction. Cause right. it, it was, I mean, you, that, that's, I only read nonfiction by the way. I never mm. read fiction anymore. Partly because in my daily life, I realize you can't make this crap up. Like right. the stuff that I see and the stuff that I've seen and the stuff that I read about, like if you wrote fiction about this, people would be like, nah, that, you can't, that's lame. That's not true. Right. But it is. You can't make this stuff up. It's so incredible sometimes that it defies um, imagination. And it's life so and death. And it's, right. it's stories. It's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's amazing. Ugh. Well, I want to respect your time. I could talk with you for I hours. I could talk with you all day as well. <laughs> this has been great. And you're like dredging stuff out that I, you know, I, I didn't expect. And that, you know, yeah, I, I appreciate it. This is like a therapy session too. <laughs> I hear that a lot, actually. Yeah, I bet you do. Um, so I have some rapid fire questions if you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm limber. I'm stretching. You guys can't see this at home, but I'm, I'm <laughs> limbered up here. All right. All right, I'm ready. The world needs... Oh my, wow, you really, okay. Uh, (laughs) Just compassion. A little bit of Mm -hmm. understanding goes a long way. Look people in the eye. I believe in. Wow. You know, I didn't know these were coming people. I believe in so much, but I really believe in family, um, hard work, and honesty. I'm grateful for 
my family, my health, um, really those are the things I'm most grateful for my family and my health. After that, everything is basically meaningless. I'm just grateful for, to have these things and, 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 and these people in my life. Love it. And last one, what's something that you've learned in life that you wish someone would have told you earlier on? How about something that I, I, I learned later in life that people have been telling me my whole life? Okay. Patience and slow down. Mm. Slow down. That speaks to me. Yeah. But I, people keep telling me that my whole life. And sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit of time to learn the lessons that we know we need to learn. And are you slowing down and being more patient? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard for me. Yeah. Um, so what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and learn more about the book? Uh, I went off of social media to write this book completely like nothing for a couple of months and it was blissful, but in order to get back into my daily job, you know, as a newsman, you gotta, you have to use social media. I mean, it's a, it's a tool that we all use. And so I've been much more active on it. So that's probably the best way to reach me. And I have been active lately and I'm going to stay active. Um, so Instagram, Matt Gutman, ABC. Twitter, Matt Gutman, ABC, and Facebook, um, Matt Gutman. So, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions about the book. Um, and if you're looking for the book, it's on Amazon or any pretty much any bookstore, I think, like Barnes & Noble or Target or Walmart. I think it's there, too. And I can't recommend it enough. It is a fast, amazing, interesting read. And one, as a parent, you're definitely going to want to pick up. Yeah, that's true. Oh, thank you thank so you much, this. Matt. This was so thank much you. fun. This was really fun. And I feel like I staggered through those questions. I want, I want another <laughs> shot because now, you know, that I believe in and I'm grateful for, I, these are the kinds of things that everybody at home should write down. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is the kind of thing that you need to put in your journal and sit on for a little bit because those are the most basic questions of life, right? Isn't that who we are? These are the building blocks. And once you get those, I, I totally flub them. I need to sit down and think again, slow down. I want to go back at them. And at some point in this, I'm going to come back to you with more thoughtful answers for those really important questions. So hey, thank any, you. Anytime you want. <laughs> okay. right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Hi, I'm your host, Liz Carlisle, and you have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Matt Gutman. I hope it gave you some new insights into the story of the boys in the cave. And I hope you go pick up the book. It's really good. Um, and also, as we were talking about at the end of the episode, I want you to be thinking about what are you grateful for and what do you believe in? And if you have a journal, maybe write about it tonight. And if you don't, just start thinking about it and uh, see what comes up. Until next time, see you later.